good evening and welcome to the latest episode of Def Leppard Pod, the officially unofficial Def Leppard fan podcast with me, your host, Paul Burns, and I am joined tonight by Mark Cookson. Mark, say hello. Hello. And I'm joined by Ian Maloney. Welcome back, Ian. Hi. How are you all doing? I, for one, am lovely. Uh, nice to see you both. What are we here to do? Let's talk about X, baby. That's what we're here to do. Are we here to talk about X or 10? What's this album called? It's called X. Yeah, 10, ten is a Pearl Jam album. Okay, we're a group, for the purpose <laughs> of the conversation, that's how we're moving forward. That's how I've seen, but I've seen it referred to by Joe as both things confusingly. But I think now everyone seems to have settled on X. So that's what we'll go, yeah. we're, we're going with. I don't, I don't think you're allowed to name your album the same as another classic album, like unless you're the replacements, then you can do it. But you know, if my band call our next album Led Zeppelin Four, that's not going to be okay. So this so, is X. So an interview with Justin Hawkins recently, he wanted to call the first Darkness album Brothers in Arms, which I thought was a brilliant idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> what we're going to do, because we are talking about possibly arguably the most divisive album in the Def Leppard catalogue, possibly this or slang, I guess, would be the general argument. We're going to state our positions first and foremost, that being the case. So, Mark, I'm going to come to you first on this. State your position in relation to X. It's the best pop rock album in the Leopard catalogue. It's superb. Ian, state your position in relation to X. <laughs> so I'm slightly reeling from that. That's that, that's a that's a bold statement. Um, yeah, I, I'd agree. It's it, it's a very good album. It's a much maligned album. It's not a perfect album, as we'll no doubt discuss as we go on. Um, but it's it's certainly not as bad as you know in the run up to this. Talking to a few people, are you doing X? Oh God, that's no. I hate that album. It's um it's definitely not not a bad album. Um, obviously within the Death Leopard catalog there are great albums you know just objectively classic albums and it's you know x is not up there with hysteria but yeah this is an album that even if i wasn't on here talking about it i would probably have been listening to in the car on the way in to the office this morning so my stated position on this is that it would have made an absolutely fantastic backstreet boys album but that i personally wouldn't want and don't want def leppard anywhere near it and i'm sure we'll get into that as we <laughs> proceed but for the most part we're here to listen to what you two guys have got to say and i did it was it, it ian and kind of in the build up for this you there was something you raised and you you were kind of talking about where this fits canonically well contextually because what we've had in the build-up to this album we've had the 19 1996's slang that there's two episodes two lengthy episodes on deflet pod because again we mentioned earlier a very divisive album euphoria follows in 1999 then we get this in 2002 and then it's followed by yeah and sparkle lounge which has always felt a bit to me like there's just this this whole identity crisis thing going on well, what's your sort of take on where this fits in all this I think identity crisis is a good way of describing it. I mean, there's an argument that X in the title stands for existential. I mean, there's kind of things. So Neil, just before we started recording, Neil posted something on Facebook about this being you know, the first 21st century album, which it absolutely is, 2002. But um, in a sense, I think of it more as Act 3 in a in the trilogy of albums. Of um, If you sort of draw a line of Def Leppard 1.0 ends sort of the Steve Clark era basically ends, you get um, Retroactive Vault and When Love and Hate Collide, and that sort of clears the decks. 
And then Def Leppard sort of version 2.0 starts slang, euphoria, and um and this album, X. You get Def Leppard at a point where they're kind of you could call it a midlife crisis, I guess. They're sort of not really sure who they are anymore. You know, the music industry has completely changed. The music scene's completely changed. Um, they don't have one of their founding members and one of the, you know, great, greatest guitarists, one of the greatest guitarists ever. Um, they've got Vivian Campbell in the band. They're sort of, in a sense, starting again. And, yeah, they, over the, that trilogy of albums, they sort of swing around quite wildly, you know, slang famously, whether you you buy into this or not, the narrative around it was it's Def Leppard trying to be a 90s band doing industrial grunge, that kind of sound. Then Euphoria, they swing to the other extreme and try to be um, sort of, I think Phil's called it a pastiche of an old Def Leppard album doing that classic Def Leppard style. And then you get to X, which is, if I can swear for a second, so language warning, it kind of seems to be the band going, fuck it, we don't know anymore who we are. Let's just try stuff. And um, in an interview at the time, Phil called this album liberating. He said when recording and writing, it was quite liberating because you're just going like, we don't really know anymore who Def Leppard are and what Def Leppard should sound like. So let's just try stuff, see what happens. And I kind of love that. I love that narrative and I love that freedom on the album. Mark, obviously interested in your sort of take on that as well. I'm very like to, I'd like to pick up on something you said in your intro there in terms of um, this being the best pop rock album in the catalogue because I'd be interested to know what you compare that to well I think you hit the nail perfectly on the head when you said it could be a Backstreet Boys album it absolutely could be a Backstreet Boys album I said the best pop rock because Leopard don't have any other pop rock albums Hmm. you know Leopard have rock albums they have cover albums. They have arguably a grunge album. They don't have a pop album other than X. X is pure pop. It's them writing pop songs. They, As Ian said, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know where they fit anymore. If you look, they're in the wilderness. They, these are the, the middle of the wilderness years. And it's almost like they've gone, well, let's go. Let's take on through the night and take the big hooks and choruses that we had there, the simple stuff, and let's try and write an album. We can't do it on our own. We know we can't do it on our own. We've just tried to do it on our own for a few albums. Let's graft in the Backstreet Boys songwriters. They can help us out. Uh, It's the first, I think it's the first time they use absolutely external songwriters with no connection to the band at all. Almost songwriters of a higher Desmond Child-like songwriters. And and they come in, and it is a perfectly crafted pop album with rock leanings. We're going to dig a bit deeper into that songwriters thing. I think at, at, on the Desmond Child thing, I'm amazed that having done this and broken their duck in terms of outside writers, I'm amazed they've never collaborated with Desmond Child. It just seems like a match made in heaven to me. Just a, a point of order on again on your own position on your own position, Mark. You do to some extent wear your love <laughs> for this album on your sleeve. Well, not my sleeve, my chest. Uh, literally, I have the X tattooed on myself because it came I loved the album uh, when it came out absolutely loved the album when it came out 
but uh, a decade later, I was at a position in my life and a time in my life when I was revisiting uh, this album in particular. Uh, and, you know, to cut a long story short, it became an album that meant a great deal to me at the time. And so I thought, well, you know, let's get that logo tattooed on. Um, I'm a famously, to my friends, famously a straight edge guy. I don't drink, I don't smoke, don't take drugs, never have done. And again, that that black X spoke to me on that basis as well. Uh, so it, it, the logo itself for me is the album cover. It's just perfection. Um, so yeah, I'm unashamedly wear my wear my X with pride. Yeah, to uh, just a little side thing for our audience here. I uh, I managed to see Mark at Wembley for the uh, gig last Saturday on the day of which we're recording this. It was last Saturday. And uh, so I've seen that tattoo. Mark exposed his chest to me and what a lovely chest it is as well. So thanks very much for that, Mark. <laughs> Let's just going to touch a little bit on what happened with X at the time. It was released in 2002. Actually, I haven't noted the date. Has anyone noted the date of release on this? I didn't note the actual date of release, but it came out in 2002. It hit number 11 on the US chart and number 14 on the British chart. Now, I've got a number here and I've I've done my best to try and verify this. The public, it seems, felt a bit more about this album, kind of they're more in my camp than they are maybe in your guys' camp. I've got worldwide sales figures of a pretty catastrophic 40,560 units that this did. And every other number on the source that I was able to find is pretty much bang on in terms of what we know. So I think that's that's reasonably accurate. So it wasn't picked up by not even the public at large. There was an awful lot of people out there who were Def Leppard fans who didn't really sort of pick it up. And I'm going to use that as a way to jump into the first single. The first single is the first song on the album, which is Now. There is an episode of Def Leppard Pod that covers now so we're not going to actually because there's a lot of songs on this album and we, we're not going to dive too deeply because I'll, I'll point people towards that episode of Deflet Pod I can't remember the number of it off the top of my head but there is a Deflet Pod deep dive episode that Neil has done on now it's the first thing we all heard so I'll come back to you again first of all on this Mark just in terms of what your first impression was and maybe give us an idea of why you know, in the first instance, it peaks decently on the chart. So it obviously does well initially, but then it just dies a death. So this helps it do well initially. What's going on here? Why is that? And what were your first impressions? First impressions were that, sound, I mean, first of all, it was released on the 30th of July, 2002. Thank you. So we're kind of almost, you know, 21 years on, uh, 21st birthday. And um, it gets the key to the door, as it were. Uh, but the first noise you hear is that weird feedbacky processed sound. And again, it's something very new from Leopard. Um, and moreover, it starts with an up-tempo acoustic guitar, which is something we've certainly never heard from Leopard before. Every other acoustic guitar we've ever heard from Leopard has been, you know, a slow ballad.
picks it up, but then automatically comes in with that pop process drum sound. Again, this is not Rick playing his acoustic kit that he has been doing on TV shows for recording. This is pure programmed drums. It's a new sound for Def Leppard. Uh, sonically, it's actually far different than anything they've released before from a production point of view. And that was enough to make me think, oh, hang on a minute. Because as we've said, Euphoria was Def Leppard by numbers, even worse than some of Adrenalize, you know, and I love Adrenalize, but Euphoria is Def Leppard by numbers. This was so different um, from that first hit. For me, the promo video does not do any favours um, to this song. It's, it's, it's a terrible promo video. For, for a good song. The performance aspect is great, but the t-shirt aspect is nonsensical. And again, I think is very much a drive by the band to say, look, look at who we were and look at who we are. You know, we were massive at one point. We're, we can still be massive now. Um, and I think it was a bit of a mistake that, but sonically, and I still think, because I was listening to it earlier today, just to kind of a refresh, and now is a very sonically strong song for them to come out of the gate with. And I'm not surprised it, it, it did well. Yeah, if anyone listening hasn't seen that video, it'll be out there somewhere. I personally completely agree with you on the video point, Mark. I think it places them in a thing whereby they, you know, here we are with this contemporary sound, but look, we're dead old. It, it just doesn't yeah. seem to just doesn't it seems a real mismatch to me. What about you, Ian? What were you know first impressions when this came out the gate? I'd agree with that. I mean, I should probably um, caveat all of this by saying I didn't listen to this when it first came out. Um, my my Death Leopard story, I sort of drifted away from for a little bit around this time. Not in a kind of I'm not one of those fans that was like slag it shit. I'm not listening to this band ever again. Just sort of I was more into to punk and stuff like that at, at that time. Um, so I came to this a little bit later, but it's still, you know, it's the first track in the album. So whether you hear it as a single or not, when you put X on, it's still the first thing you hear. And yet I agree with everything Mark said there. It's, um, it is a very, very different sound. I mean, there's the acoustic guitar, there's acoustic guitar all over this album, which is quite rare for Def Leppard. They tend to have, there'll be like an acoustic track or a, a ballad with acoustic guitars, but there's just acoustic layered throughout this, which... Um, growing up in the 90s, I'm a big fan of acoustic guitars and electric guitars in the same place. I love that dynamic. And yeah, there's some other weird guitar stuff, like, well, weird for Def Leppard, like that sort of main, um, really fast riff fill thing um, that they do is electronically cut quite a lot, like right at the end of the bar. It's almost like they, normally Def Leppard, you would let the, the note sort of hang for a bit and go into the, go into the verse. And it's just hard cut at the end of each bar like it's very clearly done on on pro tools or something like that and just like process stop 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 but i actually really like that it's very unusual for def leppard but it is a very interesting sound and with with phil collins guitar style it kind of really works there i'm pretty sure this is in a minor key i think it's an e minor um, which is very unusual um, for a Def Leppard opening track on an album. They usually start hard and high and, you know, it's an explosive, energetic song, but it's not like, you know, like um, uh, Let's Get Rocked or something like that, where you just like party out of the gate, have fun. This is, it's sort of, it's more, 
not melt, it's more somber, I think is the right word. It's a bit more, it feels like it's in a minor key, um, which is a very, very interesting choice for this band. And it sort of sets up the mood of the album very well in that sense. It is a very interesting choice. It segues us into discussing the order in which the songs appear on this album. And I know we're only at song one, but this is it's a recurring theme whenever whenever I find myself in conversations about X. And I know it's something that you two certainly feel uh, quite kind of intently about. So in terms of running order, Mark, let's come back to you first on this one. But first of all, first question, was now the right song to open the album with to you? Absolutely not. Okay, so and yeah, general sort of thoughts around that running order. Because I know you've 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 gone to some depth on this, haven't you? I, I have, I have indeed. Yeah, um, I firmly believe that the band took. I don't even think the band were involved with the running order of the album. I think it was either a record company or management at the time decision. Um, to put the to basically slap the album together in whatever order it appeared in because it does not flow. And, you know, usually I can see the point in having that lead single as the opening track on the album if it's a massive lead single, but it isn't. And, I mean, obviously, the way it worked in those days, you'd have to deliver your running order before the first single was delivered to the radio anyway. But it's, it's just lazy. It makes no sense. From a musical point of view, it makes no sense. You've got major into minor. You've got fast into slow. You've got heavy into... It doesn't flow. It stops and starts all the time. And yet, I, to the point where I decided to completely strip the album to pieces and put together what I call my um, X-Redux uh, playlist, uh, which I would tell you what it is, but I'm actually off, I'm working. I'm zooming from my phone, um, so I can't actually tell you what it is. Um, but it, essentially, it doesn't start with now. I think now is about second or third song on it. So it's okay. it's up at the front end of the album, but it's certainly not. Um, I, I don't mean track at all. Um, but I swapped out some of the album tracks with some of the B sides as well because they were much more stronger than the actual album tracks, which seems insane to me. What about you, Ian? I mean, first of all, your point about the minor key thing, that's what got us talking about this. It So, first of all, is now the right song to open the album with? And secondly, what about this business of It Does Not Flow? Yeah, I agree absolutely with Mark. Um, the, yeah, the sequencing is weird on this. I'm not sure, like, saying the band weren't really involved in it would explain a lot. That said, there are some um, interviews with Joe where he talks about, um, uh, like when he's talking about Scar, he talks about the, the track, the sequencing being unbalanced and they needed something a bit heavier, so they, they write Scar um, and put it in. So they, it sounds like there was kind of some involvement. But yeah, it's, for a Def Leppard, at like, I think part of the problem is, as Def Leppard fans, we're used to the way the band sequences albums, and they, they have a very definite pattern they follow, or they did up to this point, of sequencing albums, where they front load everything. Like, if you think about Hysteria or High and Dry, you know, side one is just all the best songs, kind of, or certainly the, the big hit singles, or what the band thinks are the best songs at the time. 
So when you buy a Def Leppard album, and I still get this now, like you buy Diamond Star Halos or whatever, you think, okay, side one or the first five or six tracks are probably what the band thinks are the five or six strongest tracks. That's the way they do things. So when you pick up X and you look at the track list, then you go, okay, well, now unbelievable, you're so beautiful every day, a long, long way to go. They, they must think these are the five strongest songs on the album. And they're not. I mean, you know, Scar is by far and away the best song in this album. It's like track 13 or something. Um, so from a Def Leppard fan's point of view, you're sort of wrong-footed straight away by that. That said, so Mark and I have both made up our own um, sequencing of this, which is which is very, very different. Um, but I kept now as, um, as the opening track, kind of for what I said before. I like that idea that it's sort of, that it's very different, that it sort of wrong foots people. It's a minor key, or maybe a might sounds minor anyway. Um, and it, it does sort of um, show this is a new kind of Def Leppard, a new Def Leppard album. It's not euphoria. It's not business as usual. We're doing something different. And I've always been a fan of that. You know, my favorite Pearl Jam album is um, No Code, where you open with something and it's, you know, quiet and it builds and builds. And everyone's like, well, this is weird. This isn't, you know, there's not one sort of whatever so um yeah i i think it's in the the right spot but the other reason as well that um george martin famously said that track one an album is the one that nothing can really go before and i think you put now anywhere else and it still doesn't quite fit in um it's you know it's got that weird digital opening thing that i think if you put anywhere else in the album you probably have to cut that and make it sequence a bit better it's so interesting listening to you both talk about this. So first of all, I've got Mark, I've got your your track listing here, and we're going to come to your opening track, and we'll, we'll, we'll deal with it a bit more when we get to that particular track. Track two on the album is unbelievable. Uh, it, literally, it is unbelievable. And it opens, I just on that thing about opening, I can't stand the opening to unbelievable. I hate those electronic wobbles. which you sort of alluded to a bit because now does a similar sort of thing, Mark. And one of the problems, I think, with them trying to sound so contemporary on this album is that it has dated it quite badly. It sounds very 2002. It's not an album that can really exist outside of that time in that regard. 100%. Yeah, and, and Unbelievable also brings us this to an issue that we simply have to discuss. The writing credit for Unbelievable is Per Alderheim, Andreas Carlson, and Max Martin. Now, I've got a quiz question for you both. Of those three, how many of them are in Def Leppard? <laughs> nope. Right. What's it do? What what what's it doing here then? Go on, go on. Ian, we'll come to you first on this. What's it doing here? <laughs> What's it doing track two or what's it doing on the album? What's it doing? What, 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 this isn't Def Leppard. I've just, re I've just read the names out. That isn't Def Leppard. What's going on? I don't know. I mean, I'm not a big fan of this this song. And um, when you're talking about like, the, the electronic stuff, I think the electronic stuff works in now, but it's the only place on the album that it really kind of works. You get a sense with that digital stuff that Def Leppard are sort of trying things and going, oh, yeah, let's see how that works. And it doesn't, they, they don't really ever go back to it. So you can, you can tell they weren't enamored with it. 
in preparation for this, I was really digging around and trying to find um, like who who first suggested let's work with other people. Because um, th- there's a few points, and I think it was when we were talking, yeah, Paul, it was when we were doing the, the Hysteria um, documentary that we were talking about. They're quite quick to throw blame around about um, working with Jim Steinman and stuff like that. And say, oh, yeah, that was, that was Cliff's fault. It was his idea. Here, there doesn't seem to be any sort of, that I could find of, oh, yeah, well, we didn't want to, but management made us. Or, yeah, that was that was Sav's idea. But And in retrospect, they, they sort of seem to just go, yeah, we... We thought we'd try it and, and see what happened. And um, it's kind of weird because, like you mentioned, um, oh, God, his name's just gone right in my head as we was bringing up. The guy, that uh, Desmond Child, you mentioned him earlier on. Um, and, you know, this was something that Aerosmith had done in the past and Bon Jovi had done in the past. They'd worked with outside writers and had big hits. But that was sort of more, like, more in the 90s. And you'd have thought that the idea of doing that and that being a popular thing for for sort of rock bands to do had sort of passed so it's kind of weird that in 2000 or well, 2001 i guess def leopard are starting to do that so why they do it i don't really know i think they just needed uh again i think it was record company pressure for want of a better word you're not selling enough euphoria hasn't done particularly well you need refreshing What's the best way to refresh, as we know from any HR meeting ever? Get someone else, else in from the outside. <laughs> um, so basically, that was just record company going, there's two notable songs on this album that are not written by the band. And it's clearly the record company saying, these are the two songs we'd like to sell. So on that, one of the writers on this track is Max Martin. Max yeah. Martin is uh, it's an amazing statistic so he, he is a legendary songwriter max martin in the pop genre uh, right uh, he's a writer on britney's baby one more time uh, i want it that way by the backstreet boys um it's gotta be me by nsync late and he's still going later on two taylor swift bangers shake it off and blank space which is one of the best pop songs ever written in my opinion uh, he has got the third most number one single credits of all time behind only Lennon and McCartney. This guy is an absolute hit maker supreme, which speaks very much to the point about the record company bringing him in. And it speaks a lot to my my attitude at the start of when we started discussing this song. It's a really cynical move. This is an attempt to get this band some sales and to get them some credibility and that's why it sits not so well with me personally something that does sit very well with me personally is something we can get into on the next track which is you're so beautiful there is an outside writer on it it is uh, marty Marty frederickson it's marty frederickson yeah of uh you know some some real rock credits struts aerosmith uh ozzy osborne motley crew uh, has worked in country with Faith Hill as well, so among other people. The rest of the writing credit for You're So Beautiful is Colin, Elliot, Campbell, Savage, Allen. Rick Allen, the involvement here is really interesting, I think, because he doesn't have many writing credits across Def Leppard's entire discography. Ian, why do we think we get Rick Allen's name attached to songs, well, every song on here, apart from the two 
just outside writer songs? I'm not sure. Again, it's another thing I was digging around because um, we've spoken about this. I think, yeah, on that Hysteria one, we spoke about it before that, you know, the, the band tends to get together. And I think they, they did it here. You know, they, they got together in a house and, and started demoing some tracks very early on. And Rick sort of like always been there, but never really credited. And so one thing I think might be involved in this is the the idea of bringing in outside writers is you said it's very cynical it also it could be spun as quite machiavellian in that Def Leppard are a very competitive band anyway you know they, they're very very clear about their ambition and their competitive nature and for somebody like Joe Elliott especially if you say yeah you guys your, your songs aren't good enough we're going to bring in some outside writers what's the reaction going to be the reaction is obviously going to be fuck you, we're going to write better songs than these guys. And I get the sense that bringing these guys in kind of maybe brought the band closer together in a sense, that sort of gang mentality and bring them all together and go, okay, we've got this and fine, we'll take that on board, we'll take these two songs and we'll work with people, we'll work with, with Marty Fredrickson. But we're fucking Def Leppard. We are still the band and we still write great songs and it's the five of us against the lot of you and that's me speculating but I, I do get that sense and you get it from like a lot of the interviews around the times that they, they come together as a band um, a lot more and you see that afterwards like the, the tour for X the world tour for X is really interesting you start looking at the the set list and things that this is a band like Sales aren't, we spoke about sales aren't good and there's there's a lot of negativity around this album. At the same time, this is a band that is having a lot of fun being a band. I mean, I pulled up the, the set list. They, they come to Japan and they play a load of dates in Japan. And like the set list in um, Kanazawa, they open with Let It Go, Another Hit and Run, High and Dry Saturday Night, Bring It On The Heartbreak, Switch 625. Side A of High and Dry in order. Mm. And they're playing 20, 22 song sets, two hour sets, which is kind of, you know, sort of unheard of. This is this is a band just really, really enjoying being a band around this time. And I think that's that's maybe part of it all. Yeah, I think I think there's a really interesting reading of that situation. I mean, M Mark, any sort of thoughts well, on the song or on that kind of Rick Allen and writing involvement bit? Yeah, I can't believe Rick Allen wrote any of the album at all. I think it is literally just they've sat there and said every song on this album will be credited to the band in full. Because I'll be honest, most of these songs sound to me like Rick Savage, Vivian Campbell songs. Mm, very interesting. There's no Joe on this album. There's a couple of lyrics that are very Joe, but melodies, chords-wise, there's no glam rock. It's like Joe had just purged himself with euphoria of every little thing he had in his depth. I was just going to say, if anyone's ever considered look, looking down the Def Leppard pod list and thought, I won't bother listening to the now episode. The, honestly, the last 10 minutes of this podcast that I've never, ever thought of either of those points. I think it's great. Ian, go on. You were, you were dying to say something there. I could see. I was just saying, it's a really interesting point because I, I get, get what you're saying, Mark, but there's on the, um, on the songwriting credits on the, the CD, which stupidly I have the cover, but I don't have the back of it with me. It's credited, it's credited to the band, but the song, the, the band order is in different order. So like um, four letter word, the first name listed is Phil, and then um, Love Don't Lie, the first name listed is Joe. I guessed 
that like the first name was this is the person who's brought in the demo and then the band's worked up from there and if that's the case then most of them are fill songs um there's only love don't lie and let me be the one are the only two where joe's name comes first so yeah you'd be right joe's not really involved but one two three four five of them if my notes are right um are fill songs fill demos and with one viv and one sav um, that's just me guessing based on that, but I, I assume that's why they would change from alphabetical order. It's really interesting to me that we're able to speculate on this because it speaks to the this is not an album the band get asked about an awful lot. And so I, I really struggle to find band interviews to, to, to get some more band impression on this, which again probably speaks to certainly the relationship with the record company. I did find Vivian Campbell having a real pop at the record company and how they supported them during this time, which speaks to the Machiavellian point as well, I think, that you made, uh, Ian. Really, really interesting stuff, this. Um, the next song is Every Day. I personally had very little to say about this song. I find it pretty generic stuff, Mark. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's the blessing and the curse of this album. It is very generic. It's generic pop rock. It is inoffensive. It's a band's last-ditch attempt to get record sales. They know at this point their career is done. And on the UK tour, they took the darkness out with them. And it was like a shot in the arm for the audience to see Justin Hawkins doing what he did, that voice, that that style, the mannerisms, the whole band, um, I have to say, showed Leopard up a little bit. Leopard came on like a bloated beast. It was literally a concert of two halves. You had this bloated rock beast at the top of the bill and young hungry outsiders coming up on the inside somewhat like Leopard were in 1978 and 79. And again, how many songs have been played off this album live since? I can't think, personally, of any instance of any of these songs being played after the X tour. I think now has shown up a couple of times, maybe, but I, and that's it from uh, from off the top of my head. Um, yeah. I mean, I it's, 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 it's inoffensive, yeah. generic made for radio pop rock yeah which and, is why i love it because i love a bit of i love a bit of it yeah i yeah i get all that i do obviously i'm sat here kind of um, with a sort of contrasting view and yet so much of what you're saying absolutely fits with kind of my view of it i mean ian every day is a good example to me of how this album is not a collection of bad songs. There are bad songs on it. We'll get to them. But it's not a collection of bad songs, right? There is some decent stuff here. Every Day is not a bad song. I just don't find it has got does anything that I can really talk about. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, looking at my notes, I've got an Excel spreadsheet, and the first word in my notes for Every Day is shit, full stop. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, it's a little bit cruel. <laughs> yeah, I was. Yeah, I, but that's not the only note. I, I I go on from there. But um, yeah, in my in my um playlist in my sequencing of this, the every day doesn't make the cut. And yeah, I don't think that there are bad songs. I think there are unfinished songs. I think there are songs that the classic Def Leppard would have spent like another year 
working on and making better. There's a lot. I mean, the guitar solos are a really good example. All the most of the guitar solos in the album sound like placeholder solos where they're just sort of copying the melody line and then they'll do something later and don't. I think the biggest problem with every day is where it is on the album. Like we've spoken about the sequencing. Track four on a Def Leppard album is your ballad. That's your love bite slot. That's tonight. That's, you know, and every day is not that in any sense. You know, for a Def Leppard fan, you get to track four and you're like, okay, this is going to be, you know, this is going to be the, the ballad. And the ballad's actually track five. We get onto that. So yeah, every day should certainly shouldn't be track four. And I would move it. Can I just go back? We sort of skipped over this when we were talking about um, You're So Beautiful. We sort of got off on a, a different tangent, but I love You're So Beautiful. I think it's a fantastic song. Really, really big fan of this song. So much it really reminds me of stand up kick love into motion mm. it's a very very similar song i think they've put it together and there's a there's a lot of this album the deaf leopard parts of this album that really remind me of adrenalize there's a lot of the same sort of style and the same sort of writing structures and sounds and even like there's chorus pedals all over this album which is like a very 90s adrenalize era Def Leppard thing and it's interesting that Pete Woodruff is is working so much on this album producing most of it um so yeah I, th- I think when we're talking about why um why it's a collection of you said like not bad songs but it doesn't always work why it really appeals to me one of the reasons is it reminds me of Adrenalize in a lot yeah, of places it's Adrenalize Zero yeah. <laughs> it's Adrenalize Zero it's Diet Adrenalize, Adrenalize and that's why like I love it that. so much <laughs> Yeah, I, again, I'm I'm not I find that I'm not really disagreeing with so much of what you're saying. I think "You're So Beautiful" is a really good song. Shouldn't be a Def Leppard song, anyway. Um, <laughs> long, long. What you've got to remember is on this album, there are nine producers with their hands on the buttons. Nine producers. Yeah, so I've I've made a load of notes around the production stuff. Mm. I mean, it too many cooks. Without a doubt. Mm. Without a doubt. Track five is the ballad, as you just said, Ian. Long, long way to go. It's a big ballad. We've discussed the outside writers thing. This is another... Um, I mean, I've got them here. So it's Wayne Hector, Westlife, One Direction, Ollie Murs later on, Steve Robson, Ollie Murs as a theme, Rascal Flats, I'll be level with you, completely unfamiliar with, Leona Lewis, Busted, Robbie Williams. What are these men doing anywhere near a Def Leppard album? It's the same sort of issue that we had earlier on with Unbelievable. 
It's a big ballad, Mark, in your words. Is it a good ballad? It would be if it was done by somebody else. Right, so this is the Backstreet Boys thing, right? This is the Backstreet Boys thing. This this is a prime example of off-the-shelf shopping for a song. They might as well have brought Diana Warren in for a spell as well, but probably couldn't afford her at that point. I have to slightly disagree with that in that Lionel Richie did a version of this song that is so much worse. Like, <laughs> songwriting aside, Def Leppard brings something interesting to this song, their version of this song. Um, you might We might as well just call it a cover. Their cover of this song um, is interesting, particularly the... Um, so I've got the Japanese edition, which has um, the acoustic version of this as, the, as track 15, the bonus version. And that's awesome. Like in my in my sequence, and I swapped them out and I put in the, the acoustic version. Phil Collin playing flamenco guitar in this. I love when Phil Collin gets out of the acoustic and goes flamenco. It's a really nice touch. It really lifts this song. Lionel Richie's version is just pop pap. It's just like, yeah, I, I put it on a couple of days ago and hadn't noticed that it had finished on YouTube. <laughs> it was like that bad. Um so yeah, it's, you know, it shouldn't, ideally you don't want, you you know, Def Leppard can write ballads. Of all the things Def Leppard can write, they can write ballads. They don't need outside help on that. But just to be positive, they do bring something to this that's more than just what the, what the songwriters bring in. Um, oh, I certainly wasn't dissing it. I think it's a fantastic performance. But what I'm saying is if someone like Taylor Swift, the Backstreet Boys, even going back to like New Kids on the Block, take that. If one of those groups, I hate to, I'm not never going to call them bands. If one of those groups released this, it'd be number one for weeks. Yeah. You know, even if they literally just mimed to the Def Leppard performance of it, it would be number one for weeks. The only reason why this song fails is the Def Leppard Albatross in 2002. Def Leppard trying to do I don't want to miss a thing, you know. Absolutely, 100%. Mm. The, the next song on the album, right, I was going to come back to something that was mentioned earlier. First of all, this is your opening track on your Redux, Mark. It's a banger. That's why. Four-letter word. I think it's the best song on the album. I think it's better than Scar that Ian mentioned earlier. This is a song that has stayed in playlists of mine forever. It is a complete and utter banger. And I'll never forget reading the Guardian review of this all the way back in 2002, which uh, was not, it was kind of middle of the road, actually. It wasn't, you know, it didn't kill the album. It's kind of middle of the road, but they really highlighted Long Long Way to Go and uh, sorry, four letter word, and said, in the case of Def Leppard, a rock is never out of the question. And my God, does it... Oh, this is the point of the album, by the way, where they move completely away in terms of the sequence of the album. They've moved away from outside writers now. Everything we're going to talk about from here on in is Def Leppard, according to the, the sleeve notes. Four-letter word, it's a banger. Mark, why is it a banger? Everything about it. Uh, it's, it's the structure of it. That opening riff, the, the picked riff as it opens, the lyrics... The lyrics are, are just superb. 
I mean, I have to going back to what I said earlier about Joe not really being on this album. I think it's, it puts in a spell here. Him and Sav clearly write these lyrics together. It's a trade-off. It's a, this is this is sweet. This is Slade. You know, this is their seventies seventies glam influence on this song. I think you can tell that Joe is also having the time of his life on it because I think he sounds ace as well. Yeah, uh, and and not overly keen or fussed about his vocals across a lot of this album but this he, he just sounds like he's having the time of his life Ian yeah there's a, there's a big ACDC influence in this song as well especially like Phil's um, Phil's Phil's there's a like back in black era kind of guitar licks punctuating the song which is just just awesome and it's the first I have to say so we're on what's that one two three four five we're on track six and it's the first decent guitar solo on the album a really good really cool solo on this one There's also a bit in the, in the structure, I mean, I, again, I forgot to check the key of this, but um, it, it, there's certain bits of it really remind me of Armageddon, and sort of the, the way, particularly the, the end of the chorus and the end of the song, yeah. there's sort of echoes of that in there. So, yeah, absolute banger. It's interesting, on the tour um, um, for this album, at certain points, particularly in Japan, they were playing four songs off this album a night. Um, they were playing Now and Long Long Way, which were the, the sort of two singles. And they played This and You're So Beautiful as well. And yeah, This and You're So Beautiful, I would love them to bring those back into the set. Those would be great, particularly this live, which would just be awesome to see. Yeah, I mean, we're halfway through the album before we get to a song that sounds like Def Leppard. Which, again, which because of the sequencing, which, yeah. which I really think you've both nailed the issue here. And when you look at the outside writer thing, it's no surprise that it is the first song on the album that is written by the band or is credited to the band. Yeah. The first five tracks are the ones with the outside writers on. And yeah, I, I, it really is making sense to me now, this whole sequencing thing. Uh, fall at a word, everyone. If uh, consider it a, a deep cut, it is, it is a banger. So yeah, fantastic Def Leppard song. We're going to have a look at the next two songs. We're kind of going to take them as a pair. It's, Torn to Shreds and Love Don't Lie. Torn to Shreds, I I think there's decent I and a decent idea in Torn to Shreds. I think Love Don't Lie is ropey. That's my sort of take across the two. Mark, where this is we're starting to get into slightly ropey territory at this point. We're now on the back end of the Adrenalize. You know, we're now on we're now on the the back end of side two of Adrenalize. That oh, have we got any songs left? <laughs> you know, uh, and, and you're right. I mean, I, as I said, you know, I'm a huge fan of this album, and Turn to Shreds. I love it. It gets in and it gets out. It, do, it does what it does and then gets out of the way. It's a great song. Again, it plays nicely against Four Letter Word, and has a huge guitar sound on it. Now, I mean, that's multi-track to Oblivion.
um, and Joe's vocals, he, he puts in a real back of the throat rasp on Soldier Shreds that we haven't heard since slang. It's almost like a slang era vocal from Joe. It's almost like a slang era intro. The intro to Torn to Shreds is awesome, I think, Ian. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, there's a bit of an adrenalized thing there as well. This is the one that's core, the chorus effect is, is so strong in the song. As soon as it starts, I was like, oh, that's that's very 90s right in there. Um, yeah, I, I said before, there, there are a lot of songs in here that feel um, sort of not quite finished. That if you know if it was Def Leppard in the 80s, they'd spend another another year working on it, and then it would still probably end up as a B side. And yeah, Torn Shreds and Love Don't Lie are probably um, def well, probably definitely in that category. Weird thing when we're talking about sequencing as well. Def Leppard always traditionally sequenced with vinyl in mind, a side A and a side B. You know, if you think about hysteria, you're, where where the break comes is important. I I don't think they were, or whoever was sequencing this was was thinking of vinyl at all here, because when it did come out in vinyl, um, Torn to Shreds is the end of side one, I think I'm right in saying, and Love Don't Lie is the start of side two. Now that's not, you know, the end of side one is like White Lightning, Armageddon, <laughs> that sort of stuff. And the start of side two is, you know, you kick off with a bang. And these are not songs that do that at all. And they're they're good. I like Torn to Shreds in particular, but... um. Yeah, I think you're right, Mark. Yeah, it's like back end of Adrenalize, that sort of stuff. But, you know, as the second and third Def Leppard songs on this album, it's sort of an odd place for them. Although that said, looking at what's coming next, it's probably makes sense. Yeah. And Best lyrics on the album for me. Torn to Shreds. Torn to Shreds, yeah. What's it about? If you don't know what it's about, mate, you've never lived. You've never <laughs> loved. You've never loved. Seriously. The, yeah. This is when I, you know, going into my revisitation of the album in 2012, I was in quite a dark place, relationship-wise and stuff like that. And this song is still, it smacks me in the gut every time I listen to it. And I'm in like a wildly happy place these days, you know. But it's, yeah, unless you, you know, if you don't know what this song's about, if it doesn't punch you in the face, you've never really been in love. You know. I've, I've only loved the one lady. She's probably listening to this. Um, there you go. You know, she's, uh, we've been together forever. Well, so that's, that's, you know, that's... she's never ripped your heart out then, which is a good thing. And so that's where we are. <laughs> Interesting, actually, while, while we're on that, the gravity and just looking through the lyrics, gravity and scar, um, depending on whether you can't kiss the day as, a, as an album track or not, are the only two songs that are not just very, very, very clearly love songs. Um, either I'm in love with you or I was in love with you songs. But yeah, Gravity and Scar are the only two that completely different subject matter. It is like from a pop point of view, they're just going route one. Yeah. You know, loves you, love me do. Love me do. She yeah. loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So Vivian Campbell described this as the love album. And I've got to say that drove me mad at the time in 2002. I, I did think, lads, okay, you like girls. You're feeling a bit mushy. We get it. You know, it, it it is hammered home on here, but it speaks very much to the pop sensibilities. Yeah. What, what, it's what, all about the pop. On yeah. this. It's all about trying to get that 13 to 14 year old girl audience back that they had with Hysteria. Now, I'm sorry, boys, as much as I love you, you ain't going to get that back. And yeah, at their age, probably shouldn't be trying. No, well, exactly. 
Can we just touch on Tommy Lee asking for tits now? <laughs> at age 62? And then threatening to get his knob out. Yeah, it was more than a little bit creepy. Oh, it was the same at Sheffield, Mark. Oh, my God, yeah, honestly. It's, just, it's, it's not good. Stop yeah. it. <laughs> I think where Tommy Lee's concerned, Creepy sailed a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. He's he's yeah, he's a long way past creepy. He's in he's in dial nine nine and I'll dial the other nine soon. Yeah. Kind of territory. Um speak- You'll catch Viv doing that, that's all I'm saying. Yeah, speak, speak, speaking of things that might be sort of crimes, let's have a look at the next three songs, if not the next four, actually, I'm going to read the run of the next four. Actually, Let, let's take them as four. Best segue in Death Lap Pod history ever. <laughs> Neil, I want that clipped and I want that put on my gravestone, please. Speaking of things that might be sort of crimes, let's have a look at the next three songs if not the next four speaking of things that might be sort of crimes let's have a look at the next three songs if not the next four gravity cry girl like you let me be the one I put it to you both that this is the worst run of four songs on any Def Leppard record. I will excuse yeah, because I refuse to believe it exists. Leave that to one side. Is there a worse run of four songs on a Def Leppard record? Ian, you were so nice to me. You can go first on this. (laughs) Um, I'm going to say a run of three songs. I quite like Let Me Be The One, so I'm going to pull that out of there. Worst run of three songs. Um, Yeah, probably. I can't think of anything worse there, there are songs i like less but not three in a row that said here's me really trying to be positive about this and um, i've got the so there's a um, bootleg of the rough mixes of this album released which i got got a copy of um and however bad you think gravity is it's not as bad as the demos where it was called perfect girl and there's perfect girl one and perfect girl two on the rough mixes and Jesus Christ, they're bad. <laughs> they are so, so bad. Gra- gravity sounds, my notes say, sounds like a garbage B-side. Now, I haven't capitalised garbage, so I'm not quite sure whether I mean the ga- the band garbage or it's just garbage, but I think, yeah, both would probably work. Not a fan, I have to say. Perfect Girl did resurface recently, and I seem to remember there was some sort of uh, talk around it maybe in like the Facebook groups and stuff where a lot of people quite liked it and oh my god I was oh Ian I'm nodding along with you but Mark are you going to disagree with us in any sense this run of take it as three or four songs however you want to look at it that's all right I'm going to tell you there's a run of 11 songs that are worse <laughs> uh 11 I'm counting hold on a minute how many songs are on Sparkle Lounge 11 let's just hold on oh I'm not having this I'm what, not having what, this no 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 Go on then. Att- attack these three or four as a group in this context. Again, it's a sequencing thing. If a song isn't a ninety percenter, and it's next to two great songs, you can kind of forgive it. It's all right. But when you get a sixty percenter, and then it dips to a fifty-five percenter, then it climbs a bit to another sixty percenter, and then you get a forty percenter. It's not good. 
and it's certainly not a way to round out an album. Ian, you had something you wanted to add about Girl Like You. Yeah, so we're talking, we mentioned earlier about all this sort of digital electronic effects on this album, like it's starting now and, and then unbelievable and them generally not working. I think Girl Like You is the point where they're really, really trying way too hard with that early 2000 sounds. There's so much kind of digital effect. It actually reminded me, and I can't decide if this is a compliment or not, um, Numskull and Ash's nuclear sounds, where it's just like rock band with DJ scratching effects in the background um yeah it's not a compliment is it now i say it out loud <laughs> it's kind of, it kind of sounds sounds like that like they're really going yeah let's just put all these effects on that's very contemporary that's very modern and yeah it, it, it has not aged well um and yeah just i wanted to add as well you included let me be the one in that in that run of four i really like this but um again on the rough mixes so there's an interview with joel um, where he talks about it talks about the rough mixes and apparently he played his dad the early versions of the songs and said that his dad loved the rough mix the, the sort of demo early version of let me be the one which is just acoustic guitar there's none of the other stuff layered on and joe said yeah actually after the fact i agree with my dad the, the rough mix is better and i do too so i'm going to call it the joe's dad version of the song i think in my sequence and the Joe, Joe's dad version of Let Me Be The One should be on the album. Um, it's much less syrupy. It's much more just a Def Leppard acoustic or a Joe Elliott kind of acoustic song, which is nice. Mark, you talked about how this sort of run is not the way to close out an album. I can't remember no. the sort of phrasing you used. Thankfully, it doesn't close out the album because the last track, question mark, and we'll come to that in a second, <laughs> on the album is Scar, which, Ian, you described earlier this as the best song on the album. state my position it is absolutely brilliant this is a really good Def Leppard song why is it the best on the album Ian? Um, it's, it's really really well written it's interesting Def Leppard have a thing where um, the, the last couple of songs they write for an album tend to be the best ones on the album you know they're, they're obviously in, in the right headspace by that point Sugar being the you know the famous one of it and and Joe said sort of the the album felt really un, unbalanced to him and he thought we need something heavier, something stronger, something a bit more like in a paper sun, um, that side of thing. So they wrote Scar. And there's a really, I couldn't find out the original source, or I didn't track down the original source, but I saw on the DefLeppardUK.com website, where I think it was on there, and it, where Phil talks about, like while he was writing this, he felt like he was kind of almost channeling Steve, that he was playing guitar in Steve's style. And when you listen to it, it's a very kind of that era Def Leppard sound and the guitar sound, sort of, you know, White Lightning, um, Gods of War sort of guitar sound. So that alone is going to sell it to me. You play a Def Leppard song like that, and that's that's the Def Leppard I, I love more than anything. Also, for, for an album that's not really a great guitar album, you know, there's some, there are songs like Four Letter Word, but like if you were sitting down 
to learn to play guitar along to a Def Leppard album, this is not the one you'd put on. The solo in Scar, in Scar is just fantastic. I, again, I couldn't work out. I'm not sure if it's both guitarists get a solo and they, and they cross-fade them or if it's just one guitarist doing two solos that are entwined. I hope it's both of them. Um, but it's just, what a great, great guitar solo. And then the outro to it. Um, periodically, and I'm pretty sure it's Phil that does this, periodically they get a very, very strong 90s um, Smashing Pumpkins guitar tone. There's a track on um, Diamond Star Halos, the name of which just escapes me, that does this as well. The outro of Scar is very kind of Pumpkins-esque, which uh, you know is another thing that's guaranteed to sell it to me. I love the counter melodies with the backing vocals are doing in the verse on this. It's it, it, it Mark, it's mint. It is absolutely mint. It's, a, it's twice the length of some of the tracks on the album. You know, it's it's Def Leppard being allowed to be Def Leppard. And as you said, last song written for the album, last song recorded for the album. I think they've all, all the producers, all the record company execs that were added hands on the mixes, all the 12,000 producers have kind of just left Leopard and Pete to it on this one. Uh, and that's why they deliver a good, a good Def Leopard as you know them track. As I said, I'm a fan of this album. I'm trying to, I've tried very hard to look at it through not real tinted spectacles and to be very kind of, no, let, let me forensically examine why this album doesn't work for a lot of Leopard fans. And I'm very aware that it doesn't work for a lot of Leopard fans. And I'm certainly not trying to sell them on the album and say, no, you're all wrong. This is why you should like it. And if you don't like it, then you're not a true Leopard fan. I'm certainly not saying that because it has many, 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 many faults. But Scar is not one of them. Scar is really not one of them. And again, I think that this has been left to just... Woodruff and the and the band to pull it together. I hold in my hands the only copy of this album that I own. I bought it in 2002 and I bought it in the UK. Has a black cross on a white background, as does the Japanese version. And as a result, this is not the last song on the record because we in the UK and Japan, maybe in some other territories as well, I'm sure, we got... Kiss the Day as a bonus track. Kiss the day and If you bought the white cross on a black background version, you did not get this. I think I'm right in saying. No. Yeah, there's not UK and Japan only. So, it's a really good addendum to the album. 
for me. Bearing in mind, you know, my, my general take has been that this is, re- you know, I'm not a fan. I think I've kind of made that clear along the way. Neil has ju- he released a, a YouTube video. The videos have been taken down now when he was doing his deep cuts series, his Step Outside, Walk This Way series. So it has just been released as a bonus podcast. By the time of recording this, it's just been released as a bonus podcast. So out there, you've got a bonus podcast that discusses Kiss the Day as a deep dive song. So I must point you towards Neil's that that podcast episode as a listener because Neil talks about this an awful lot. So I do just want to focus on what it brings to the album when it's included. So Mark, it's it's a good addendum, this isn't it? Oh, it is. It's, did you say you had my Redux? list on there i have yeah this year, this year i put kiss the day on the main album don't i let's have a look yeah because you track do this four. weird thing yeah you, there you go uh, ian's got it so it's track four because you of course do this weird thing where you you, re- you release you do a pre-release ep in your work, yes don't I do. You? yeah i do i get unbelievable out of the way that way so it's not so it doesn't form part of the album uh, you well you also get cry out of the way as well which yeah is, we're all quite exactly because they're two quite different songs but I think give give a flavour of what the album's going to sound like. So for yeah. me, they, they should have done the, the Beatles route and done like a double A side, Strawberry Fields Forever, Penny Lane. With, no, you, know, no. you, you cannot part. compare Brian Unbelievable with Strawberry Fields. No, but they're two different sides of the coin, aren't they? I'm not, I'm not comparing them in any way <laughs> to acknowledged masterpieces of modern music, in fact, music full stop. What I'm saying is they're two very different songs um, that should have, that possibly should not be on the album and should have been out with the public before because then you get that big ballad, or, well, the ballad Unbelievable, out of the way and take it off the album and put a bit more meat on the album. And Kiss Ian, the Day, brilliant. It, yeah, Ian, Kiss the Day definitely should have been there, right? Absolutely, I have no idea why it wasn't, and and yeah, the, the episode Neil did on it is great. But basically, the episode is him going same as me, like why, why is it not on the album? Why and why only put it in two territories if you're going to include it? It's it is odd. I think if my theory that the the, the order of the names in the songwriting credits is right, then Sav's name is first on this one. I think I'm right in saying so. This might be um, the only Sav one um and it's it's great so certainly the sad songs go it's it's a really good one um i'm a big fan of this um in the japanese edition not not the last song though there's a there's the acoustic version of long long way to go to come which i love as an ending to the album that's how i'm used to it anyway but even on my sequencing kiss the day and then long long way to go acoustic would be how i would i would close out the album and it's yeah it's really nice yeah, same, really? same in the UK. We got that as well. But for me, I've always sort of considered Kiss the Day as the last song on the album. And and that does bring the run of tracks to a close. So before we wrap up here, we've um we've we've covered some real ground here. It's been absolutely fascinating listening to you both talk about this. And I, I, what what has really struck me as the person who came to this with the more sort of negative attitude towards this album is that I actually don't think we've come across many wild disagreements in the course of this conversation. No, not You know, I think we've just come at different angles to the points being made. I, I, I can't wait to hear the feedback on this episode. I'm going to be really interested to see what people think of it. Um, I just want to close out by offering up in any other business to be discussed, because I do have one other thing I'd like to say, but anyone else got anything else? Yeah, Viv's hair. It was <laughs> criminal on this tour. 
In fact, Joe's hair was really criminal. Yeah, yeah. That's that's just before Viv reaches peak Viv. Viv reaches peak Viv in like 2005, where his hair grows a little bit. Oh, it's, it's astounding. But it's his fashion choice more than his more than his um his stage wear is not a good look on him for this tour. It's that tight PVC kind of string vest look. Doesn't look good. So you've got Viv as the complete rock god on one side of the stage. Phil is starting to lose his shirt, you know, by this point. You know, the the, the actual the set lists on the X tour were brilliant, were really good. But they were a bit, obviously, apart from Make Love Like a Man, because nobody ever needs to hear that. <laughs> um, but they were being delivered by a band that were really in the doldrums. I mean, the Apollo show certainly was about half sold. And if you, and then if you, so that's maybe 1,000, 1,500 people. You know, that's got to be the lowest point for the band. Um, and I do wonder if, again, when they realise that the big experiment of outside writers and um, and record company intervention and everything else was didn't go according to plan, whether that was the, the catalyst for the year album, like, oh, shit, we need to do something, what do we do? Uh, we'll do an album covers, but at the same time, they're, they they kind of had a resurgence in America. That in some context, funny enough, well, we could we could launch straight into a chat about uh, Sparkle Lounge, but that is coming further down the down yeah. the road because in this context, Sparkle Lounge could, in some people's eyes, be described as almost like a return to form kind yeah. of, given that all that context you've just given us, Mark. Um, Ian, any other business? Yeah, I, th I think that feeds back into sort of what I was saying at the start about this being Act 3 in Def Leppard's existential crisis or the, their midlife crisis, that you, you have slang, you have euphoria, then you have this. Then there's that, yeah, there's that um, there's four-year gap and Yeah comes out, which, you know, is a cover album. And just while you were talking, I just pulled up the discography. So they've got the best of Def Leppard is released in the UK in 2004, and then Rock of Ages, the definitive collection, is released in American Canada in 2005. So there's this comes out. Then there's a couple of best of collections. Then there's a cover album. But in, in the overall narrative of Def Leppard, I would argue that you need this album. You need this low point, if you want to call it that, or this complete yeah. bucket, let's try anything. Let's go through this process of... They sort of had to get to the point of going, okay, we accept we're never going to be as big as we were. We're not getting that back. And from now on, we can just do what we want. So you get Sparkle and you get the 2015 album and you get Diamond Star Heroes, which for the first time, Def Leppard are, are not trying to make an album that has a coherent sound and it all sounds like this. They're just kind of really doing what they want to do. And, you know, if you want to write a song that sounds like Queen, great, let's do that, put it on the album. If you want one that sounds like Zeppelin, great, put it on the album. I don't think you get any of those albums without them having gone through this process. And that, that to me, makes it an important album, certainly in the narrative. Yeah, that yeah. sounds fair. My, any other business to close out is, I just want to talk a little, 
not very long on this, but the packaging, right? This, so I've got the mine is the 2002 CD. I don't own the uh, the, the the vinyl version that came in the box. But was it only, was it only released as part of the box set, or is it come out? No, they then released it singly. Did they? Right. Okay. So first of all, the cover. Anyone who's not familiar with it, we've described it. It's an X. It's either a white X on a black background or a black X on a white background. I think it's shit. That's my thing on the cover. But by it's far, genius. It's a genius piece of graphic design. By far, the worst thing about this packaging is if you open up the middle pages, there is a picture of all five members of the band and four of them are doing these ridiculous, cheesy, jumpy, poppy, look how much fun we are poses. And it drives me mad. And the that's my point, that the packaging is dreadful. Mark, it looks like you're about to hugely disagree with me. No, no, I'm about to wildly agree with you. It's the <laughs> it's the McFly busted. It's the McFly busted era of Def Leppard. It's the the Backstreet Boys and Sync era of Def Leppard. It's please buy our music, Def Leppard. <laughs> it's we will do anything we can to make you like us, Def Leppard. <laughs> um, and all the time, it's so desperate. It fails miserably. And you'll notice when I, you know, I don't want to be like fattest or sizest or whatever, because I'm, I'm I'm certainly not. But you'll notice that Joe's the only one not jumping. Yes, he's very <laughs> prominently placed. And you could argue this is the kind of lead singer position, which is yeah. not a very Def Leppard type thing to do. It, oh, it's so lame. It's just it, lame. And it is, it's, it's really, really wincy. But, but again, that's that speaks more about the record company than it does about the band, because there is no way that the Def Leppard we know or knew would have let that happen, whereas one person is singled out. They're a fist. Def Leppard have always been a fist. Mm. And in, in some degrees, still are a fist, very much a fist. They're a fist grasping a bag full of money now. <laughs> But they're, a, you know, they are a fist, and um, at that era, they they were doing, they were being led or being told what to do by the record company. I mean, I, ha I have to say, the record company had probably given them a nice fat advance after uh, after Adrenalize did wildly successfully, um, and they probably, and obviously, Vault cleared the um, record company dealings the contract you know the best of cleared the contract so he would have had to re-sign with the record company post vault pre-slang now if you're a record company and you buy Def Leppard and you get slang then euphoria neither of which do very good business now, that's the nature of the music industry at this point it is what it is and the tide had turned very much away from bands like Def Leppard. Then you get, basically, that's why you get the pop, the outside writers, the production, you know, the, the way X is, the generic, inoffensive X, full of saccharine songs. As I said, it's it's adrenalized zero. It's diet adrenalized caffeine free. You know, it, it is what it is. But that is absolutely the record company saying we need to recoup some losses somehow. 
you've cost us a lot of money. We need some money back. Thank you very much. Yes, Hysteria is still selling wildly. Yes, Adrenalize is still doing very well. Pyromania still shifts about a million a year. So, you know, all doing very well. It X-flops. There is no way to sugarcoat it. X wildly flops. I mean, a band like Death Leopard selling 40,000 albums is not a good thing. Um, so then you get the Rock of Ages definitive collection 2005 packaged in a Union Jack with the adrenalized eye on top, you know, in the hysteria colors. Look what this band are. Remember this band? Remember this band? They were real, they're now a legacy band. And once Death Leopard accept they're a legacy band, like they do in 2005, on the back of this absolute ex failure, then that's when the Death Leopard machine starts to climb again. And they do a 46th stadium date in the U in the US. And then they start doing the legacy tours, the co-headliners, you know, and they start to bring the fans back. And we get to where we are now. They just played a date at Wembley Stadium. No, it wasn't sold out, but there was a large group of people there of all ages, not just your Def Leppard fans. So in some ways the gamble that they took in 2002 has taken 20 years to pay off. Yeah. It's like you said, Ian, ultimately actually a pretty important album. Uh, and, uh, I think, uh, I think we'll leave it there chaps. I've got to say, I have had a ton of fun doing this. I, I don't, I really didn't know what to expect in terms of sitting down and talking about X. And I've been looking forward to this for, well, for, for years actually, but certainly since Neil started this, it's, it's been fantastic. So I'd like to say thank you to Mark Cookson. Uh, thank you to Ian Maloney. Uh, we just talked about X, baby. Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. Zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine is not available. At the tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Oh, hello everyone. It's Paul again. And I've just received a phone call from Neil. And he was absolutely enraged, screaming down the phone at me. And I wondered, what, what on earth is it that I've done wrong? And he said to me, I can't believe you've taken my podcast and you've you've treated it so shabbily. I said, Neil, Neil, what, what have I done? And he informed me that I had completely forgotten to check which songs from the X album myself, Ian and Mark had decided should be on the Deflet Pod playlist. Now, thankfully, being the pro that I am, I actually had discussed this with the fellas. Uh, it just never made the episode. So I can confirm, and for those who've listened to the episode, this won't be a surprise. I can confirm that Four Letter Word and Scar are the two songs that will go on the Deflet Pod playlist. Chances are this is the last you'll ever hear from me on the podcast. So if this is the end, thanks everyone. I've really enjoyed this and I really am so, so sorry. <laughs>